Welcome. Here is this past Sunday's sermon from Grant Memorial Church. Our God is good. Our God is great. Well, good morning, Grant Memorial. My name is Cam. I'm one of the pastors here, and we're so glad that you have joined us as we continue our series through the Old Testament book of Genesis. When was the last time you had a good laugh? And I'm not talking about just a little giggle, right? I'm talking like a tears running down your cheeks, bent over because your stomach hurts, contagious to everyone else around, and you can hardly breathe type of laugh. Have you had one of those recently? If you have, I'm not going to get you to share what made you laugh like that because it would likely make no sense to anyone else around and we would all judge the fact that that made you laugh so hard. But if you can't remember uh, the last time you had a good laugh, you're not alone. You see, if you are an adult, even those little chuckles, let alone a good belly laugh, are few and far between. You see, well, the average child laughs on average between 300 and 400 times per day, the stats tell us that the average adult only laughs around 10 times per day, which tells us a few things. First, adults are lame, <laughs> right? We take ourselves far too seriously. Second, we need to laugh more. And to help you with that, the homework that I'm assigning for today is to open YouTube when you get home and enter either pinata fails or goats screaming. You're welcome. And number three, that what we will see in our text today is, is really remarkable. Because if we hardly laugh at the best of times, ten times per day, let alone in the context that has led up to the passage that we find ourselves in this morning. You see, over the past few chapters in our study, there, have been, there has been very little to laugh about. James Montgomery Boyce reminds us by way of summary that for the past three chapters of Genesis, 89 verses, there has been nothing but one grim revelation or act after another. First, the announcement of Sodom's impending destruction... Second, Abraham's relatively ineffectual intercession for it. Third, the deliverance of Lot and his family followed by the destruction itself. Fourth, Lot's sin with his daughters. And fifth, Abraham's shameful attempts to deceive Abimelech. It has been relative doom and gloom over the past few weeks, hasn't it? And so it is surprising and very refreshing as we turn the page today into chapter 21 that our text begins with laughter and unadulterated joy. So with that said, I invite you to turn with me in your copy of the scriptures to this morning's text in Genesis 21 to see just what this laughter is all about. And you can grab one of the pew Bibles in front of you, uh, your own copy. If, if you don't have a Bible of your own, I encourage you, grab one of the copies in the pew in front of you and take it and leave with it. It is our gift to you. We want to ensure that everyone has the Word of God available to them every day. But this morning we're starting in Genesis 21, starting at verse 1. Now the Lord was gracious to Sarah as he had said, and the Lord did for Sarah what he had promised. 
Sarah became pregnant and bore a son to Abraham in his old age at the very time God had promised him. Abraham gave the name Isaac to the son Sarah bore him. When his son Isaac was eight days old, Abraham circumcised him as God had commanded. Abraham was a hundred years old when his son Isaac was born to him. Sarah said, God has brought me laughter and everyone who hears about this will laugh with me. And she added, who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? Yet I have borne him a son in his old age. The child grew and was weaned. And on the day Isaac was weaned, Abraham held a great feast. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your word. We pray today that as we uh, dig into it, Lord, that, that we would encounter your truth and that we would leave changed as a result. Amen. Isn't that a much better read than what we've been reading over the last couple of months? Right? Less sin and death and destruction, more joy and celebration. Right? And, and church, the laughter makes sense here, doesn't it? It's no wonder 100-year-old Abraham and 90-year-old Sarah are filled with such joy. The promised son that they had been waiting for was finally here. Isaac had come just as the Lord had promised. Now, if you have been following with us throughout our series, you'll already know how significant having a child was in the ancient Near East, especially for women. You see, for women at this time, their entire purpose and identity, not to mention their survival, was wrapped up in the family that they bore. And because of this, infertility was not only emotionally devastating, but was socially and economically crippling as well. Right? The future was bleak for those who had no offspring to take care of them and to carry on their legacy in the world. In fact, avoiding this very reality was the motivation of Lot's daughters just two chapters ago in their sinful endeavor to secure a future for themselves by sleeping with Lot. Well, it is out of this reality, church, 90 years of barrenness. Think about that. And assuming that procreation began at age 15, this was 75 years of misery. 75 years of self-loathing, of self-pity, 75 years of judgment and ridicule from others, 75 years of cycling through disappointment, anger, apathy, guilt, out of which Sarah's laughter births forth as she holds her very own son after nearly eight decades of devastation. Can you imagine the joy that she felt? Can you imagine the release, the exhale, the sheer delight? And when you combine that with the absurdity that this miracle happened well past the time where it should be possible, it is certainly a recipe for laughter. You see, I think that a part of what made Sarah laugh was maybe the juxtaposition of her newborn baby's wrinkled skin in her own aged wrinkled hands. She even suggests this herself in verse 6, saying, everyone who hears about this will laugh with me. Why? Because this is not normal. 
This is crazy. This is miraculous. And so Sarah and Abraham laugh as they try to fathom just what God has done. You see, it's interesting that this is the third time since the beginning of the scriptures where we have read about laughter. And the two previous times were laughs of disbelief regarding this very promise. In Genesis 17, Abraham falls to his face laughing, saying, Will a son be born to a man 100 years old? Will Sarah bear a child at the age of 90? And in Genesis 18, Sarah follows suit, laughing to herself, thinking, After I am worn out and my Lord is old, will I now have this pleasure? And here in today's text, we have the very same people who laughed, disbelieving at what God said he would do, laughing now in amazement that he actually did it. I hope, church, that as, as we continue to walk in obedience to God, that this place would echo with laughter as we share stories of the incredible things God has done and is doing in our midst. Right, That we would be a people who regularly just shake our heads in awe and amazement of what God has done. That we would be able to celebrate our God regularly, laughing along the way just what he can do. And that is also our goal for today. With this text, to learn along with Abraham and Sarah as they laugh about our God, right? Through the unfolding of the account of Isaac's birth. And so we're going to look at four things that they learned about God in this moment through the birth of Isaac that if they didn't know already, they certainly uh, knew it afterwards. And these are things that are good for us to know as well. And so the first thing that Abraham and Sarah learn through the provision of Isaac is that God keeps his promises. God keeps his promises. God did what he said he would do. Look at verse 1. Now the Lord was gracious to Sarah as he had said. And the Lord did for Sarah what he had promised. Isaac's birth was not something that happened out of the blue or accidentally. Isaac's birth was something that God had ordained. He had spoken about it, made promises regarding it, and here God keeps his word. God had repeatedly made this promise of a son to Abraham over a 30-year span, speaking of his offspring, descendants, and a nation to come through this son. And then just a few weeks back in chapter 18, he shared more specifics as God said to Abraham twice, intentionally within earshot of Sarah, I will surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, will have a son. And here, one year later, his word proved true. And for us, church, as we read this account, we learn, too, that our God is a promise keeper. The scriptures tell us that what he says he will do, he will do. 2 Corinthians 1.20 says, For all the promises of God find their yes in him. 
That is why it is through Christ that we utter amen to God for his glory. Right? God's promises are yes. They will come true as they always have. You see, in speaking of God's actions towards his people, Joshua 21, 45 says, Not one of all the Lord's good promises to Israel failed. Every one was fulfilled. Right? God's promises come true. God's promises are kept. And so church, we can be confident that what God's word says will come to pass. We can, as the old hymn says, that we just sang, stand on the promises of God. Now, before we move on to the next lesson in the text, and this is kind of getting us off of our list for a little bit, I, I do want to provide just a word of caution, not a downer, but a caution when it comes to declaring and counting on God's promises. You see, while it is true that God will do what he has said, that's our point, God keeps his promises, we need to be careful not to put words or promises in God's mouth. In my experience, I have found that much of the disappointment that Christians have with God is when he doesn't do the things that we think he has promised us, when in reality he never made such promises, right? We hold God accountable for words that he never said. And there are a few ways that we get into this predicament, and I want to highlight just two for today. The first way that we misinterpret God's promises, setting ourselves up for disappointment, is that we try to apply promises made to others to ourselves, right? We try to apply promises made to others to ourselves. So one common error when it comes to reading scriptures is making ourselves the main character in every passage that we read. And therefore, claiming for ourselves the things that God has promised to others. Author and theologian Greg Kukul calls it stealing someone else's promise. And it, it looks like this. We read a verse, right? We're reading through scripture. We read a verse or a half verse like Psalm 46.5, for example, that says, God is within her, she will not fall. And we go, I like that. And we put it on mugs and T-shirts. And we claim it over our mothers and wives and daughters in every endeavor they face. Right? God has promised that she, whichever she I am thinking of, will not fall. So my daughter won't fail her test, or my wife won't succumb to her injuries, or my mother won't lose her fight with cancer. That's a promise from God, we think. But here's the problem, friends. Psalm 46 wasn't written about you or your mother, your wife, or your daughter. It was written about the city of Jerusalem. She, in Psalm 46, is Jerusalem. And God is promising Jerusalem in the time of King David that God is present and he will protect his city. Then that where he is will Last, right? That's the context. And so here's a question. Has God made a promise here in Psalm 46? Yes. Will he keep his promise? Yes, absolutely. The holy city of God will not pass away. But does that mean that God is bound to the health and success of every woman we read this verse over? 
Absolutely not. Right? Do you see how that works? And friends, we do this with all sorts of scripture. Right? We claim victories promised to Israelite armies over our own personal conflicts. Or we apply promises of future prosperity meant for Jews in exile over the success of our businesses. Or healing spoken by Christ to a specific person in the first century over our own health situations. Right? And while we do learn about God's heart and God's character in these texts, and we may come to understand the way God has acted in history and may act in similar circumstances, but it doesn't follow that everything God has said to anyone at any time is a personal promise to me. Church, we need to understand the context of a passage, of a promise before we claim it, or worse, conclude that God has failed to keep his word because he didn't bring it about in our lives. Right? What the scriptures tell us is that God will keep the promises he makes to those whom he makes his promises. Now, I, I don't want to discourage us here. Right? I feel like there's, it's a downer in the room now, and I apologize for that. I actually want to keep us from discouragement. Right? There are hundreds of promises that we can claim for ourselves in the scriptures, right? Some are general in nature about his character and his action in the world, like Psalm 145, which we also sang about earlier, or we read about earlier. The Lord is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and rich in love. The Lord is good to all, and he has compassion on all he has made. God is compassionate and loving. This is a promise about who he is and how he acts that we can all be confident in. Or James 1.17, every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. What's the promise here? God will not change. That's a promise based on his character, and we can all stand on and count on that promise. There are also promises of salvation for all who will believe. Romans 10, 9 says, If you declare with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. That is a promise. John three sixteen. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have, ever, have eternal life. These are promises that we can count on. Salvation, eternal life is promised to those who believe. There are promises throughout the New Testament for the church that you can count on if you are a child of God. Philippians 4, 6 to 7 says, Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God, and the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Right? God promises his presence and peace when his sons and daughters Call on him. Or James 1.5, if any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God who gives generously to all without finding fault and it will be given to you. Church, the scriptures are filled with promises that are ours. Promises that are guaranteed, but we need to be careful not to claim those that are not. And the way that we decipher that is to ask, who is this spoken to? What is the context of this promise? Is this promise for me? And quickly, the second way that we can misinterpret God's promises, I think, and become disappointed with God, 
is that we define the terms of his promises incorrectly. Right? We define the terms of God's promises. Right? And so even when we come across a passage of scripture, a promise that is for ourselves, something aimed at the church or to all people in general, our tendency is to define what a, what a specific promise will look like rather than letting God define it. Right? So let's look at Romans 8.28, for example. And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. Right? This is a promise that we can claim for ourselves. Right? It's, it's a promise made to those who love God and have been called by him. But the error that we can make is by defining what the word good means in this passage and holding God to our definition of good. Right? Will God work things out for good? Yes, this is a promise of God, but it will be he who determines what is good. Does good mean health and wealth and safety? Does it mean comfort and a lack of conflict or trouble? Not necessarily. God knows what is ultimately good, and what we will see in the end is that the ultimate good that we may or may not be able to see right now will come to fruition. So if I get sick... The promise, God will work things for good, doesn't necessarily mean that I will get healed or not feel any pain. Maybe it means that God will use my suffering to sanctify me or to draw me closer to him. Or maybe he will even use my passing to glorify himself so that others may be saved. Right? Which is way better than temporary health or comfort in this world in the long run anyway. And so when we read about goodness or blessing or healing, we need to let God define those terms and not claim promises that he hasn't made by defining God's words for him. But, church, we can be sure that when God makes a promise, what he means will come to pass for those he meant it for. As is the case here with Abraham and Sarah. And God, keeping his promise, prompted Abraham to keep his own promise to God. Verse 4 says, When his son Isaac was eight days old, Abraham circumcised him as God had commanded him. So Abraham, in response to God, does what God had instructed him to do, symbolizing, if you remember, that his son was a part of God's special chosen people and the heir of the promise that God was bringing to completion. The second thing that Abraham and Sarah learn here is that God can do anything. Right? So God keeps his promises, and God can do anything. Notice the emphasis on age here in the text. Verse 2. Sarah became pregnant and bore a son to Abraham in his old age. Verse 5. Abraham was 100 years old when his son Isaac was born to him. Verse 7. Yet I have borne him a son in his old age. This repeated emphasis in the text about how old Abraham and Sarah were makes the point that this is not normal, right? That this is a miraculous event. 90-year-olds, believe it or not, don't have kids. 90-year-olds don't have kids, especially with their 100-year-old husbands. 
It just doesn't happen. It doesn't happen today. It didn't actually happen then. And yet this physiological limitation, this biological impossibility is no match for what God can do, which is what this text makes clear. It is God who made this happen. Right? There's no way that this senior couple could mistake or confuse God's blessing of this son with their own action. Right? Only God could have done this. Humanly, this was impossible, but God can do anything. Right? And this is something, church, for us to know about our God. He can do anything that he desires. That means that when we come to him, when we pray, church, we can pray with confidence that while in his sovereignty he may or may not choose to answer the way that we want, there is no restriction to what he can do if he so pleases. There is no ask too big for God. There is no sickness that God cannot heal. There is no relationship that God cannot mend. There is no storm that God cannot calm. There is no need that God cannot provide for. There's no prodigal too far gone that God cannot bring home. And so may we be a people who pray big, not limited by what we believe to be possible because as Jesus says in Matthew 19, 26, with God, all things are possible. And now again, God may choose to act or answer differently than we desire but he, because he ultimately knows better, seeing more than we can see. But we can be confident that God's answer to our prayers will never be, I can't, because our all-powerful God can do anything. Well, the third thing that we learn here, along with Abraham and Sarah, is that God's timing is different from ours. God keeps his promises. God can do anything he desires, but his timing trumps ours. Take a look at verse 2. Sarah became pregnant and bore a son to Abraham in his old age at the very time God had promised him. And according to this passage, this day was the very day that God had intended all along for Isaac to be born. When God promised Abraham 30 years earlier that he and Sarah would have a son, this is what he meant. This is the day that he had circled on his calendar. And while Abraham and Sarah didn't understand, and waiting until they were 190 years old respectively was likely not their idea of great timing, God knew best, and God's plan prevailed. Now think about those 30 years that Abraham and Sarah waited, right? I don't want to downplay how difficult waiting is. I was reminded how much I hate waiting when I was at a restaurant the other day and it seemed like everybody who came in after us got seated before we did. You, you ever felt that rage? Right? But, and so, so we, we don't want to downplay that, right? And so think about those 30 years, Right? Think about how many times they doubted, how many times they questioned God's ways, how many times uh, they even tried to speed the process up themselves, as we read about in Genesis 16, as Abraham gains a son in another way. 
But the thing that we notice through this 30 years is that God wasn't in the same hurry that they were. Right? He saw the ending. He knew the conclusion, and he simply wanted them to trust him. Just this past week, I had the opportunity to visit one of our church family in hospital. And as we were visiting, he shared a quote with me that's so pertinent for his situation as he navigates health challenges, but also for all of us as we look at this passage. He said this, As I walk into the unknown, I place my trust in the one that I know. Think about that. Let me say that again. As I walk into the unknown, I place my trust in the one that I know. If we could all live by that truth each and every day, we would find ourselves laughing much more than stressing as we wait on God who we should know to be faithful and good. That's what this is all about, right? For each and every one of us, are we willing to trust in God's timing? As we panic over our own timelines not being met, over our delayed answers to prayer, are we willing to concede control to the one who controls it all? As God reminds us in Isaiah 55, 8 and 9, for my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. Church, understand this. What God does is better than what we would have done. And when God does it is better than when we would have done it. He sees all, he knows all, he understands all at an infinitely higher level than we do. And church, that is a good thing. And finally, the fourth lesson here for Abraham and Sarah and for us is that the other promises are to follow. The other promises are to follow. If we look all the way back uh, to Genesis 12, when Abraham enters the scene, God makes a threefold promise to Abraham, right? And, and you should be able to recite this by now because we keep coming across it over and over again, right? But the three, threefold promise is that God would give Abraham a great name, that he would make Abraham the father of a great nation, right? His own people, his own descendants through whom the entire world would be blessed and that, he would, that God would give his people a land of their own. Well, here with the arrival of Isaac, God has made good on the promise of a people, right? If we're looking at that promise, we can actually check off one of those aspects of the promise, right? God has given Abraham the son through whom the nation would come. And if God can give him a son under seemingly impossible circumstances, a great name and a land for his people seem relatively easy in comparison, right? The miraculous birth of Isaac is like a seal for the entire promise, and because of this, Abraham can be confident that God will make good on all the other aspects of the promise as well, which, church, is great news for us. Because as we've discussed over the past few months, the culmination of the promise 
is Jesus Christ. The way in which the entire world will be blessed by Abraham's people is that out of the line of this son, Isaac, would later come God's son, Jesus, to bring salvation to every tribe, tongue, and nation. The Apostle Paul explains this in Galatians 3.8, saying, Scripture foresaw that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, this is 2,000 years later, by faith in Christ, and announce the gospel in advance to Abraham, all nations will be blessed through you. Right? And that, church, is the most important element of this passage. Right? This text ultimately points to Jesus. The, the birth of Isaac that we read about here in Genesis intentionally foreshadows the birth of Christ that would come roughly 1,900 years later. And just to prove this to you, so you're not just taking my word for it, I want to walk through the similarities of, of the birth story of Isaac and the birth story of Jesus so that we see that the former is a prophetic vision of the latter. And we'll do this quick, but look at this connection. The first similarity of the birth of Isaac and the birth of Christ is that they were both supernatural, right? They were both miraculous births. In Isaac's case, he was born to parents well beyond childbearing years. And for Jesus, he was born to a mother who was still a virgin, right? In both cases, God was the one who brought their conceptions about. Secondly, they were both the promised seed or the promised son, right? Well, the son Isaac was promised to Abraham 30 years prior to his birth. Jesus was promised to the world from the beginning in Genesis 3, when God told Satan that the seed of the woman, her offspring, would one day crush his head, putting an end to all sin and death. Third, both had pre-announced conceptions. Right? In Genesis 18.10, the Lord visited Abraham and Sarah to tell them that they would conceive and give birth to a son in one year. Well, in Luke 1.31, an angel visits Mary to tell her that she would conceive and give birth to a son as well. Right? And just so you know, this doesn't happen often in Scripture. This isn't like the mode or, or, or uh, way that God announces births. These are very, very unique. Fourth, Isaac and Jesus' mothers reacted to the news with very similar questions. Sarah responded to the announcement saying in Genesis 18, 13, Will I really have a child now that I'm old? Well, Mary responded to the news of Jesus, asking in Luke 1.34, how can this be since I'm a virgin, right? They hear this news of conception and they go, wait, there are limitations here. And the response to both queries is exactly the same. To Sarah, God replies, Genesis 18.14, is anything too hard for the Lord? Well, the angel replies to Mary, saying in Luke 1.37, for nothing will be impossible with God. Fifth, both Isaac and Jesus were named by God before their conception. Genesis 17, 19. Then God said, yes, but your wife Sarah will bear you a son and you will call him Isaac. Luke 1, 31. You will conceive and give birth to a son and you are to call him Jesus. Sixth, both occurred at God's appointed time. 
Genesis 18, 14 tells us that Isaac would be born at the appointed time. Well, Galatians 4, 4 to 5 says of Jesus' birth, but when the set time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law to redeem those under the law that we might receive adoption to sonship. Right? When the time had fully come, like the birth of Isaac, the birth of Christ came at the precise moment that God had intended, not too early, not too late, but the time appointed by a sovereign God. And the seventh similarity, I told you there were a bunch, brings us all the way back to the joyful laughter we talked about earlier. And as we read, when Isaac was born, his mother laughed with joy, saying in Genesis 21, 6, God has brought me laughter, and everyone who hears about this will laugh with me. And we see this same joy surrounding Jesus' birth as well. Mary says in Luke 1, my soul glorifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. Meanwhile, the angel's announcement of Jesus' birth is labeled as good news of great joy that will be for all the people, Luke 2.10. Just as Sarah and Abraham laughed in amazement at what God had done, I can't help but think that the angels were laughing too at how wonderful, how unbelievable it was that God was coming to earth to live among his creation to save them. You see, as we read about this this promised son's miraculous birth-bringing joy, we are invited to look forward to another promised son bringing joy to the entire world through his own miraculous birth. Now, there is so much more we can compare and contrast, even in this text from today, right? I know that was quick and somewhat less than thorough, And spoiler alert, as we move forward in our text, this comparison will continue as we will see the life of Isaac, not just the circumstances of his birth, continue to foreshadow the life and work of the one coming after him, the ultimate fulfillment of the promise, Jesus Christ. But for today, my hope is that we would see that the birth of Isaac, God coming through on his promise to Abraham means a lot more than simply the historical news of a boy who lived in the ancient Near East four millennia ago. But that this boy was the first step of a fulfilled promise to Abraham through which the world, you and I included, would be saved. While Isaac is the son of the promise to Abraham and Sarah, the ultimate son who would fulfill the promise, the one through whom the whole earth will be blessed, is Jesus Christ. And in the same way that God in his own time, at the right time, sent Abraham's miraculous son Isaac, God sent his own son too so that you and I could experience for eternity the joy that comes from knowing him. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you for this text. God, we thank you for the reminder that you keep your promises. God, that you are a promise keeper. God, we thank you, Lord, for who you are. We pray, God, that, that we would be people who come to you, who pray big, 
who claim the promises that you have given to us, Lord. Help us to be careful. But Lord, help us to live within the joy that you have set before us as a result of a promise you made 4,000 years ago. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening with us. For more information about our church or upcoming services and events, please visit us at grantmemorial.ca or on social media at at Grant Memorial Church.